Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Pastor Ben Pitney starts a new series called One Love with a message titled The Serpent and the Crushing Conquest of Christ. Join us in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Goodness, I've had a lot of people want to email me and make a suggestion about some heavy metal music to use for the bumper. <laughs> there are more people at Vail Christian Church than I thought that really enjoy heavy metal music. So I'm trying my, see, they're, they're back here cheering and, and uh, <laughs> it makes me so happy. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, you can imagine how many times we get to hear about what kind of preferences in music um, there are. But we, uh, we have wrapped up one series here last week um, that focused on eternity and eternal things. And in light of eternity, how should we live? We kind of ended things, it kind of actually ended a little bit different than I started out thinking we, I, we would go. But we, uh, we're now entering into this series called One Love, and it's really about spiritual warfare. It's about a battle. It's about war. War for one love. It is what God's uh, will is. One will, the will of God, and um, loving him and him alone. Our God is a jealous God. And he is sovereignly in control, but we've got to navigate this battle, this war, spiritual warfare. And it's shocking to me how much the scriptures have to say about this battle, about this war. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to talk through this battle. I'm calling it a battle over one love. It's a battle. It's war. It, it, it. It shocks me how much we actually kind of know about this, and yet we are very, very ignorant, ignorant to so many of these things. That's why we talked about Satan a lot last week, the devil. We're going to continue to talk, and how does this battle get started? Where did it begin, and what's this all about? I still want to try to answer some questions. I've had a lot of people with questions this week, and, and so I want to try to answer a lot of those questions because it's not an easy thing to do. You do have to read your Bible. So Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one, okay? Here we go. Now, the serpent was shrewd or was shrewder than any, other, uh, any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, is it really true that God said, you must not eat from the tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit um, from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the orchard, God said, you must not eat from it. You must not touch it or else you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, well, surely you'll not die. For God knows that when you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You'll be, you know, like divine beings, knowing good and evil. Verse six, and when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, 
who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Go down to verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. Now, I don't know what it sounds like when God's moving around in there, but it scared them to death. It's kind of significant, I think. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Nobody wants to be seen naked, right? And the Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, oh, this guy. (laughs) Such a guy. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What a worm, that guy, right? It's just like all guys are like this, though. Verse 13, so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? I mean, he doesn't let her off the hook either, though, ladies. And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me and I ate it, all right? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because uh, you you have done this, curse are you above the cattle and above all living creatures of the field. On your, I love this part, on your belly you'll crawl and dust you'll eat all the days of your life. You're going to eat dirt, crawl in your stomach. Verse 15, and I'll put, this. here's here's key. This is the verse I want to get to. Here's how the battle emerges right here. You ready? You need to underline this. I will put hostility between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike, or you could say attack right there, your head, and you will strike or attack his heel. Okay, now, war, battle, it's over one love, spiritual warfare. We've talked about Satan. We've talked about eternal things. We've talked about lots of things like how's he going to go about this? What's happening? Why? I want to answer some questions, okay? But first, I was just really thinking this through, and it's hard. Do we have any Marines in the audience? Anybody, a a Marine vet or a retired Marine? We got somebody right here who's a Marine, right? We only have one, two. All right, so I only got to worry about the two of you in terms of I'm, if I get it wrong, okay? Just forgive me. I'm not, uh, I, I didn't grow up in a military family, but my son uh, is, and he's been um, in the Navy now for um, a, a f- number of years. So Mitchell, my son, is inserted as a Navy corpsman with um, Marines right now. He's inserted with a company, a specific company of Marines. Now, Marines, you know, there, there's, there's a bigger, larger group, and they all have names. So there is a battalion, and then there are companies of Marines. And they get smaller. And then within the company, there are platoons, and then they divide up platoons into squadrons or squads, right? And each company has a specific kind of role, and there's basically three kinds of roles. And, you know, in layman's terms, there's roles that defend. There's roles that are support roles, you know, because it takes a lot to marshal um, military. And then there are offensive roles, right? Attack roles, warrior roles. So Marines are commonly referred to as warriors. There's lots of names, there's lots of stuff, and they have lots of mantras. And, and uh, it's, it's unbelievable to me how much, uh, 
structure there is that I don't still understand. And some of it, you know, quite honestly, I think we get to know about and some of it we don't. Um, they're very nimble. They can divide up squadrons. They can be as big as they want or as small as they want. They can give them specific missions. There, there's all kinds of roles that are do, utilized in teams for specific things. But there is this one role that my son has. He is a, a, a Navy corpsman. There's a Navy SARC. There's all kinds of other acronyms for these guys. They can have specific roles too. But he's inserted as a Navy, a guy in the Navy with Marines. So he is considered, he, he goes green side, blue side. So even though he's Navy, he's with the Marines right now. He can be with anybody. They can insert him wherever they want, right? He could be with anybody, but it's kind of unique. So he's been training a lot with them and he's on a, he's on a forward deployment right now. Um, here he is right here. Let me put him up. He's in the middle of this picture. This is my son, Mitchell. He's with a couple of Marines. You can't tell who's Navy and who's not, only by if you're just looking at some of their insignias and pins, but they know who he is, right? And so he's responsible for a two or sometimes three squadrons in terms of what he does in terms of medical trauma. And as somebody gets messed up in the field in this offensive warrior role, all right, that his particular company is special weapons and they use weapons that are big enough to carry but small enough to where you don't need machinery to move it around that much, right? They jump in and out of those things called ospreys because they can get close to the ground and they jump in there. I think like 18 guys can get in there, right? And they can jump, land them in the water or in the jungle or whatever. So they're just, that's all they do is train. I'm telling you every time I turn around, that's all they're doing is training. Send you over here to learn how to do this. Send you over here to hand-to-hand combat. Send you over here to learn how to sew up somebody who got blown up. Send you over here to figure out or to shoot weapons, right? Or to, we're going to drown you for six months and see how you do. And I mean, man, it's just insane, right? The kind of stuff that they do. Oh, man, but these guys are like, oh, they're in unity, and they have a mission. And, and I'm telling you, the company that he's a part of, in particular, they have one purpose, one. They exist for one reason. They're sent for one reason, two specific things that nobody else wants to do. They are warriors. They play offense. Their, their whole thing is they're supposed to kill, Right? In war. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that you got to do in battle, but these guys, that's what they do. Here, there's some more pictures of them. I don't know. They're in some, go ahead. I, I mean, you know, they're just in the middle of something. They just blew up somewhere. And then uh, keep going. This is, this is their company. Keep going. This is their whole company. It's actually not huge, right? This is their company. And they're just training to do things you never want to have to send them to do. Okay, what, what am I talking about this? Why? I, I think if you understand warfare, I mean, man, these guys got it together. They practice, they train. That's all they do for specific things. They are ready. They know the enemy. I mean, I was just talking about, you know, what, what kind of training are you doing? Okay, without saying, now I got permission to show you these pictures because some of them, you know, I... I just got told no. I was talking to Mitch the other day, or not the other day, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago, actually. 
And I don't get to talk to him that long. And I'm like, what is, what, you seem kind of crabby. He goes, oh man, it's been rough. Like for the last 10 days, we, it's been a lot of hand-to-hand combat training. I said, really? Tell me about that a little bit. Well, he says, it's mostly two-on-one the whole time. Two-on-one, two sometimes three-on-one. I'm like, what? Two-on-one, three-on-one, why? I mean, it sounds sort of logical because then you, could, you would get better. And he said, yeah, it sounds logical. I'm like, well, what, what's that all about? He's, he's like, yeah, it's just really hard because you never win at two-on-one, three-on-one. Why? Because there are three Chinese soldiers to every one Marine. So if we get sent into this stuff... It's three on one. He goes, that's the real reason, Dad. It just made me like, that's the reason. Doesn't that sound like, well, we got to be smart about this. We got to be ready for this. We got to know how to deal with these kinds of things. Now, look, I'm, I'm not getting everything right, but let's talk about this serpent. This Genesis says right from the very beginning, and we saw where the that, that last verse, we're going to look at a little bit more. The, the battle begins right there. The war starts right there. This is a war. We've been talking about this for weeks now. This is a war between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan. Why? I want to answer some of these questions. So before you get to Genesis chapter 3, if you read through the first two chapters, everything's good. In fact, God says in chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he made and it was very good. He says that. God did not create anything evil. It's all good. He says it. Then suddenly in chapter three, there's this serpent and he clearly is evil. He's calling God's word into question. Genesis 3, 1. Is it really true that God said, you must not eat from the tree of the orchard? Is it really true? He's inserted doubt and that is evil. It's manipulative. Can you just see the lie that's already emerging? It's just in that statement. It's in particular based on what you know if you've been here the last few Sundays, right? He's devious. He's deceitful. He's destructive. God had said in Genesis 2.17, look at Genesis 2.17 up here. It says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. And does God mean what he says, right? But the serpent says in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, but he says... Surely you'll not die, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like divine beings or you'll be like God, right? Who know good and evil. So Jesus says, you, you don't have to spend a lot of time finding this, but you go to Jesus in John chapter 8, 44, Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what we know already. Just connect the dots in the war, in the battle. It's all going to be a bunch of lies. Who is this serpent then? The fullest answer that I could come in, uh, come to in one Bible verse, it's actually contained in one Bible verse in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, verse nine. It says, the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the serpent in the garden or the orchard 
is the devil, which means slanderer. Serpent means slanderer, and Satan means accuser. And the deceiver of the whole world, Jesus calls him the evil one in Matthew 13, 19, and the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, right? The Pharisees, those guys, right, that Jesus seems to be battling all the time in this war, by the way, they call him Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's got no good names, right? Paul calls him the God of this age in Corinthians 4.4 4, and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. So that's the one we meet in Genesis chapter 3. That's who he is. He is already evil, already a deceiver, already a murderer, Jesus says, when he appears in the garden of God. So we're in the orchard, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks to the serpent. He pronounces judgment on him because the eternal son of God had to become man. The son of God had to become man because it was the offspring of the woman who was to attack and crush or strike the serpent's head. Genesis 3, 15, right there, right? And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack or strike your head and you will attack or strike her offspring's heel. So notice it first, when you look at this verse, it looks like the warfare, the battle, is gonna be between the two offsprings. That's what it looks like. Between your offspring and her offspring. But in the next word, something different is said. And you gotta focus. It says, her offspring will attack your, keyword or strike your head. Who is your? The answer, the serpent himself, not his offspring. Okay, now, let's keep going because there's this crushing of Satan at the cross that I wanna get to. We know this is coming. You know sort of some of the end of the story. Let me help you connect the dots because the day is coming when Romans 16, 20 or Hebrews 2, 2, 14, when you put these two verses together again, what happens is it says, the God of peace will quickly crush Satan under your feet since the children share in the flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity. God became, or Jesus became man, right? Shared in their humanity so that through death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil, all right? So that decisive blow, that strike, that attack was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, this is one of the reasons why the eternal son of God had to become man again, because it was the offspring of the woman who would attack and crush and strike Satan. And that happens at the cross. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 describe what God did for those who trusted, who trust in in Jesus, who trust in the Son of Man, who trust in the Son of God, when he died on the cross, that work we refer to, that work on the cross, providing the way, right? Colossians 2, 14 and 15, he has destroyed what was against us. What was against us? A certificate of indebtedness expressed in degrees or decrees opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Disarming the rulers and authorities, he's made a public disgrace of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. 
the one eternally destructive weapon that Satan had was stripped from his hands, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should die with him. When Christ died, that accusation, that certificate of death was nullified. All those who trust themselves to Christ will never die. Satan can't separate them from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8.37. So here's what we're talking about. A real and authentic insurrection. And the insurrection of Satan. So the question that cries out for an answer. Everybody wants to know. Where does Satan come from? Why does God tolerate his murderous activities? What in the world here? In Genesis he just appears between the perfect description of Genesis 1. Right? But then, every, you know, everything's good, Genesis 1.31. And the appearance of evil in Genesis 3, something happens. The good creation is corrupted. The little book of Jude, John, First and Second John, Jude, Revelation. First, second, and third John, Jude, Revelation, right? The little book of Jude, one chapter. And then second Peter in the New Testament give us a clue as to what happened. Jude chapter one, verse six just says, you also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal change in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. Second Peter two, four says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into hell and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. So it appears at one point there, there, there once was a, an unbelievable army of angels and some of them, including Satan, sinned, or as Jude 1.6 says, did not keep within their proper domain but abandoned their own place of residence. In other words, the sin was a kind of insurrection. A desire for more power, more authority than they were appointed by God and under God. So Satan, as a created angel who with other angels rebelled against God, rejected God. And these angels and their all-satisfying king and ruler and joy. And they sat out on a course of self-exaltation. They presumed some things, Right? They, they presume self-determination. They don't want to be subordinate. They have a mission. They, are, they have duties and responsibilities that God assigns them to minister. They're sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. If Hebrews 1.14 says they have authority over them. They, 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 they want authority over themselves. They want to exalt themselves above God. Now, let's talk about the origin of Satan's sin then. Why? How could this happen? How in the world can this happen? There's not an easy answer. I've worked really hard to give you the answer. In fact, the biblical answer creates more questions. You know, it's kind of like getting the answer from your parents when you ask a question and they say, because. It's like just, that is not satisfying. So let me, let me go just, and, and here, here's a, Here's a good response to that. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror indirectly. But then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. All right. 
It seems in this age, while we know in part, we will not know the whole answer until Jesus returns. And it's my belief that when he returns, we're not going to care about the answer. We're going to be thinking about other stuff. But the question still remains, why would a perfectly holy angel in God's infinite beauty, beautiful presence use his free will to suddenly hate God? Why would he do that? There's also an, an idea out there that God was helpless to prevent this rebellion. But this is, does not account for why perfectly holy beings would use their will to despise what they were created to adore. And it, and it doesn't fit with what the rest of the Bible says about God's rule over the devil, actually. So let's talk about supreme, unrivaled authority and power, because that's what God has. My approach to answering the question of how to think about the origin of Satan's sin is just to read the, read the whole Bible. <laughs> read the whole Bible with the question... How does God respond to Satan's will? How does God respond to Satan's plans and what he wants to do? Is God help us before the will of evil powers? Is there power outside of God himself that limits his rule over them? Or is God presented, is he presented throughout all of the Bible as having the right and the power to contain and restrain and bridle Satan anytime he pleases? And if so, well, why doesn't he just destroy him? Just read through the Bible, thinking through those with, without the lens of those questions, right? So when I read the Bible, here's what I find. Just the tip of the iceberg. I've done it for you, but you got to read it for yourself, right? I'm going to lay out just the tip of the iceberg, if, if you could even call it that. Of God's authority and his power and his power. His unrivaled supreme authority and power. Here it is. God's sovereign reign and dominant rule over Satan. Here it goes. I'm gonna summarize it first in just one statement. Satan exists when you put it all together to amplify and intensify the might, dominating command, wisdom, love, grace, mercy, patience, anger, rage, and fury of Jesus Christ. That's why he exists. Those are just some of the words I could come up with. You can come up with your own if you want. Number one, though Satan is called the ruler of this world, this is what he's referred to in the New Testament. The ruler of the world, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Though Satan is called the ruler of the world, Daniel 4, 17, the most high has authority over human kingdoms and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. All you gotta do is read Psalm 33. Let me just read a little bit for you. I can't hardly stand it. Wow, just read Psalm 33. Look at, by the Lord's decree, the head, starting in verse six, by the Lord's decree, the heavens were made and the breath of his mouth and all the starry hosts. He piles up the waters of the sea. He puts the oceans in storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all who live in the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came into existence. He issued the decree and it stood firm. The Lord frustrates the decisions of the nations and nullifies the plans of the people. The Lord's decisions stand forever. His plans abide throughout the ages. That's just a glimpse of that. You should read that whole psalm, right? See, though Satan's called the ruler of the world, you know what? 
the ultimate one, God holds sovereign final rule. And, and if you go back to Genesis 1.28, you know what God's intention was? Who was supposed to rule? Who's supposed to subdue? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves in the ground. Man, that must have really made Satan mad, the serpent. Why wouldn't that make him mad? On your belly, you want to get him all mad. On your belly, you'll crawl in the dust you'll eat all the days of your life. So, <laughs> Does God have sovereign rule and dominant rule over Satan? Of course. Number two, though unclean spirits are everywhere doing deceptive and murderous things, they are. Mark 1, 27, even he commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, when Christ commands the devil, the devil has to obey. And all of his minions, so to speak, are demons. Number three, Satan is a roaring lion, prowling and seeking to devour. Of course, he is 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober and alert, Peter says. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, he's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Resist him, strong in your faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the, the world are enduring the same kinds of sufferings. In other words... Suffering is the way Satan is trying to devour Christ's followers. But Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. In other words, if God should will it, if he wants it, if he's planned it, if he's allowed it, the suffering, right, in the jaws of the, of the prowling lion, they're opened and they're closed only according to God's will. Still has to submit to the Lord. It just changes perspective, doesn't it, when you start thinking like this? The truth, when it stares you in the face about what's happening and why it's happening and the purposes of it's happening, it just keeps getting and unfolding. Number four, Satan's a murderer from the beginning. We know this. Jesus says in 8, John eight forty four that he's taken the gift of life out of the hand of the giver. He says all these things, Right? But it is the Lord that gives and the Lord that takes away. We find that in Job 121. Still the Lord. He gives and takes away. He decides. Number five, Satan aims to destroy Job. We just read through that story. It's such a, an amazing story. And, and so he, he aims to destroy Job. He wants and focuses on destroying Job. And, 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 and he wants to prove that God is not Job's treasure. He wants to prove that. And God basically says, okay, go for it. You just can't kill him. You got to ask me about these things, right? I mean, that's really what happens, right? Satan's got to get permission from God before he attacks his possessions with destruction and before he attacks his body with sickness. Just read the story. He's got to get permission from God to do it. You can say all you want, well, well why did he do that? What was, what was the purpose of that? It's coming. It's still coming, right? Number six, Satan's the great tempter. We know this. He's great at it. He's wise. He wants us to sin. He wants us to be frustrated. He's, got, he's smart. He's wise. Remember last week we said, you know, Satan's wisdom. He's this pinnacle of creativity. He's full of wisdom. God created him to be wise. So wise that if he were a cup and you added one more drop to it, it would overflow. That's how wise he is. He's wise. He's smart. Luke tells us that Satan is behind Peter's three denials. You know where he denies him? 
Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no way. He tempted him to deny Jesus. But could he do that without God's permission? Listen to what Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. He's demanded. He's asked. He said, I want to sift him. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brother. See, Satan couldn't do what he wanted with Peter without God's permission, even at the denial. Have you ever caught that? Wow. And when he had it, just like with Job, God set a boundary, right? Satan's the great tempter. You're not going to destroy Peter. You're only going to make him stumble. This is why Jesus says, when you've turned again, not, not if you turn again, when you turn again. Why? Because he had a plan for Peter. You'll strengthen your brothers. So Jesus, not Satan, has the upper hand here. And Satan is allowed to go so far and then not farther, not beyond what God has in mind, right? Wow. Number seven or last, um, Satan has the power to blind people, does he? Have you seen it? Has he blinded you even? Sometimes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never surprised anymore how blind sometimes, you know, have you ever just observed somebody else? Let's make it about somebody else for, for just a minute, right? Where they're like, how in the world can you not see this? Do you hear yourself talking? Right? Maybe somebody said that to you and you're like, what? I don't get it. Right? Of course, it's happened to me all the time. Come on. Right? He has the power to blind people. He's really wise. The God of this world, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. But is this the power to blind people? Is, is, is this ultimate power? Can God overcome it and resist it and nullify it? Of course he can. Because two verses later, Paul says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown our hearts and given us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In other words, the blinding effect of Satan, it gives way. It has to yield. It has to submit to God's light when he says, let there be light. It has to. That's the God we serve. That's the God we know. That's the God we believe in. That's the God we should be trusting in, right? God governs Satan's every move. In the midst of this battle, it doesn't mean it's not war. Doesn't mean it's not ugly. Doesn't mean it's not bloody. Doesn't mean it's not really hard and, and, and frustrating. Why would it not be? So now back to the question about the origin of Satan's sinfulness. Is God helpless before the will of his own angels? Is there a power outside of God himself that limits his rule over them from, from the beginning to the end of the Bible? The Bible presents God as governing Satan and his demons. He's governing it, governing it all. You know, Satan gets blamed for a lot of things he actually doesn't do too. He has the right though, God and has the right and the power to restrain Satan and his demons Anytime he pleases, God caused Satan to fall, not because he was helpless to stop him, but because he had a purpose for him continuing to live. And you don't have to like it. That's the way it is. So since God has never taken off guard, 
His plans and permissions are always purposeful. If he chooses to plan and to permit something, he does so for a reason, an infinitely wise reason. How the sin comes about in Satan's heart, we don't know. I don't know. God hasn't told us. What we do know is that God is sovereign over Satan. And so Satan, Satan's will does not move without God's permission. Now that, that sounds crazy. And if every move of Satan is a part of God's overall purpose and plan, right? Then, and this is true in such a way that God never sins. God is infinitely holy and God is infinitely powerful. Satan is evil and Satan is under the all-governing wisdom of God. Why not exterminate Satan? I still haven't answered that. Why? Why? I mean, I've kind of answered it. But let's pull it all together. Why? Why not exterminate? I mean, he could just go... He spoke creation into existence. I could speak it out of existence, right? Why then does God not simply wipe him out? He has the right and the power to do it. Revelation 20.10 says he's going to do it someday. Why didn't he cast him out into the lake of fire the day he rebelled? Why let him storm through humanity for centuries? The ultimate answer is that, turn to Colossians 1.16. This is the Bible verse you, you got to have. Here's, here's the truth summed up here. The ultimate answer is all things were created through Christ and for Christ. All things were created through Christ and for Christ Jesus. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be highly will be more highly honored in the end because he defeats Satan through what? Forbearance. Patience. Humility, sacrifice, suffering, and death. All the things we don't like. Rather than through raw power. Because if it was me, it'd be all about raw power. Would it be for you? You ever have to eat some humble pie? I hate that pie. You ever have to be patient? Who wants to be patient? Oh, Sign me up. I'm so patient. Let me have some more of that. Forbearance is long suffering, right? Humility, sacrifice, suffering, death, all of this. And the more the son of God is highly honored, the greater the joy of those who love him. So let's talk about this because you, you cannot understand the extensiveness, the fullness of Christ's glory, right? The glory of Christ, in other words, reaches its apex in the obedient sacrifice of the cross where Jesus triumphs over the devil in Colossians 2.15. So Jesus says, now in my final hour is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him, John 13.31. Paul says, also he says, we preach Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. So Jesus says to Paul about Satan's thorn in Paul's side, my power is made perfect in weakness, 
2 Corinthians 12, 9. So in the end, in the end, here we go back to the same quote we started with. Satan exists to amplify and intensify the might, dominating command, wisdom, love, grace, mercy, patience, anger, rage, and fury of Jesus. That's why he exists. He magnifies who Jesus is. We would not know Jesus. We would not know him. And the extensiveness and the fullness of his glory if he had not defeated Satan in the way he did. Oh, yeah. It's a battle and it's a war though, right? Man, I would do it different. But look how amazing and awesome Christ is in light of knowing now why Satan is left to exist. God's smart. He's wise. But it doesn't mean that it's not going to be war, does it? And battle. And it's ugly and bloody and painful. And there's death. So the, the equipping and the training and the, and the discipling and the mission that we're given, and the, it's hard. I think we got to be about it, just like the Marines and the Navy, though. I mean, they just spend, all, that's all they do is train. That's all they do. From the smallest job to the, to the biggest job, they get ready for specific things, and they know their enemy. They get it. They know how to use weapons. They know, and we're going to talk about all those kinds of things. Those are the implications. Those are the implications. There is a, a structure and a plan, and we are included in this battle in this war, but it's still all about God and this battle for one love. That's what he wants. He wants you and relationship with you and you to love him above anything else. The byproducts are amazing when you're in relationship with God. Focus on that one love, that one will. Thank you, Father, for these stories. Help us to understand and embrace what you've asked us to do and who you've asked us to be. It's not easy. Help us to continue now as we're studying this battle, this great war for one love. Help us to become wise and trust you. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. We're gonna trust you or not, that you're in control, that you have purpose and plans behind everything that you plan and permit and allow. Help us to surrender and trust you, Lord. It's so hard to trust you. We know that's what you want and you give us the, the opportunity to, to, to do that and to surrender. Help us not to stiff arm you and hold you at bay, but to submit and embrace and believe in the work of Jesus on the cross. We know that that was that final blow to crush Satan's head that we needed. We don't know all the answers, God, and I want to thank you for not giving us all the answers. I, I really believe it's to help us to depend on you and to trust you. That's what makes you God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information, or would like to see the video cast of this message, 
please visit our website at www.bellchristian.com.